Friends, what we want to do in this uh, session together is think about a little bit about uh, regaining meaningful church membership. Let's say we agree with what Jonathan Lehman presented to us in the first session, uh, that, it is, that meaningful church, the church membership is more than just an aid that the individual Christian may choose to use. What can we do as pastors of churches to help church membership be more meaningful? I mean, did you hear the one about the Baptist church and their problem with squirrels? The squirrels had gotten inside the church building, in the attic, even down into the kitchen. They didn't know what they were going to do about it. Finally, somebody came up with a solution. So they baptized the squirrels, and now they only see them on Christmas and Easter. I think after that it's appropriate that we pray, and then we will turn to address this idea of membership. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the fellowship we have together in Christ. Thank you for that supremely in Christ and in our local churches. Thank you for that in these temporary times we have here together. We pray that you'd give us wisdom as we think about your church. Help us to know how we can be faithful stewards of all that you entrust to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, uh, two-thirds of Southern Baptists are non-attenders. Two-thirds of Southern Baptists are members of churches that they do not attend. In fact, from what I can tell from reading the statistics, two-thirds of people who call themselves Southern Baptists do not attend churches. In fact, if you poll Southern Baptist churches about how many members they have, they will tell you that two-thirds of their members, that they, people, that they think are members, do not attend their church. Now, I certainly appreciate the fact that any church may have members not in attendance on any given Sunday. Our church is like that. Uh, we have every Sunday, I'm sure, members who are homesick, members who are away in the military, members who are away at college, members who are away on vacation or on business. Perhaps they're on the mission field. Maybe they're in a retirement home. Some are not in attendance maybe permanently at home with illness and disease. Uh, others may have moved and not yet moved their membership. Uh, others uh, have gone overseas for military service. But I fear that most of our members are perfectly able to attend Sundays, uh, either in the local church where they're a member or someplace else, but they just don't. Now, those people should join where they attend. And if they are able and do not attend, then they should not be allowed to be a member of a Christian church. In fact, they are in sin. Hebrews 10.25 instructs us not to be like those who forsake the regular assembling of themselves together. Disobeying this clear instruction doesn't inspire confidence in the non-attender's ongoing repentance and faith. So a member's regular, tolerated non-attendance begins to bring up further questions. What kind of leadership must a church have that allows such a misrepresentation to grow up and flourish? What kind of expectations are communicated to those who are joining? What discipline is practiced? In fact, tolerated non-involvement among members may even call into question the kind of evangelism that's being done. Uh, the church's understanding of conversion, maybe even of the gospel itself. 
allowing such non-attending members to retain their membership would seem to be such a blatant disobedience to Scripture and such a brazen disregard of the spiritual health of those concerned that it would even seem to call into question the teaching that has brought about such an unhealthy tolerance in the body. This then is a difficult topic, regaining meaningful church membership. How do you regain what is not understood? How do you make meaningful something that you don't believe in? After all, many Bible-believing Christians today deny that church membership is biblical as quickly and as easily as Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity or Muslims deny Christ's divinity. Show us the verse, they say. Uh, But the truth God has revealed in His Word isn't limited to simple, explicit statements. Much of the most important teaching of Christ is relationship to His Father. The Spirit's relationship to the Father and the Son is best and most clearly understood when we pull those passages together and compare them and we constructively teach and understand what's being revealed in Scripture about God's nature and the Trinity. It's the same way with church membership. That's what Jonathan was doing for us in the first session. But then today we must even ask, what does membership mean in such an amorphous group as a local church? What is a local church? Among many today, from popular writers to mission strategists, even that definition is faded. And friends, if you don't know what a local church is, you can't very well pastor one. It's a difficult topic, but even more than it's difficult, it is important. So I want to do three things. I want to very briefly define the church. Then I want to help you think about how you can talk about membership. I appreciate the way, Alistair, you said the, the, you know, the word job and office might not be the best way to convey the privilege. All right, let's think about how we can positively, accurately, biblically speak about membership positively in a way that you can teach your people about membership. And then the third thing, I just want to give some very practical kind of things you can talk about after lunch, suggestions of what you could do to try to regain meaningful membership in your local church if you feel it's somehow been compromised or lost. All right, so brief definition, talk about membership as love, basically. That's my second point. And third thing, some practical steps to try to regain it. First, briefly, definition, what is a church? Uh, well, we all, we all know that a church is not a building, right? It, it's very nice to have this building. We've got two brothers with us in our internship from East Asia, and every time we visit a church building, you know, they look, they, they look at it and they think, wow, wouldn't it be nice to, to have something like this? Uh, but, you know, God and His providence is not allowing those brothers in their country to have things like this right now. But we're all very aware that, that they have churches, they just don't have buildings like this. So, of course, we know a church is not a building. Uh, churches don't even need to have buildings. For that matter, the first few centuries, Christian congregations, from what we can tell, own no buildings. They met in private homes. A misunderstanding of salvation in the church that grew up in the patristic period led to the church being conceived of as regularly requiring specific consecrated spaces. But at the Reformation, it again became apparent that a building was not required for a Christian church. You know what is required for a Christian church? Members. You've got to have members to have a Christian church. So a, a church is composed of members. The body of Christ is composed of members. Those people who have been born again, uh, wherever they meet together. They may meet meet in a building owned by them corporately, a church, or they may meet in a building owned by them individually, like a home or in a rented space. 
but it's the people that are essential to the church. Without a specific community of people, a Christian church does not exist. Samuel Jones defined a church well in his 1774 summary of church discipline. A particular gospel church, you're not going to be able to write this down, so just listen to it and enjoy it. A particular gospel church consists of a company of saints incorporated by a special covenant into one distinct body and meeting together in one place for the enjoyment of fellowship with each other and with Christ their head in all his institutions to their mutual edification and the glory of God through the Spirit. Well, that's a good way to talk about it. That's a good way to understand what a church is. All right, what does it mean to be a member of a church? Pastors today can't assume that Christians understand church membership. We can't assume that our members understand the importance of their membership. Uh, Many pastors have forgotten anything more than just pragmatic arguments for it. One of the main things I love about the messages at this conference, and I've heard, you know, Jonathan's now and all of us went over our notes together this morning, is you have heard and you will be hearing not merely pragmatic arguments for membership. There are those out there who will make pragmatic arguments because they would like to see more people coming to church. And it's a good thing to want to see more people coming to church. But friends, there are reasons that you believe in church membership from the Bible because of what God has revealed to us about the nature of the church. In the past, many pastors have recognized the vigorous practice of membership, not just as a matter of prudence, that it's a wise thing to do, but of principle. You are wrong not to do this. And so it would not merely to be unwise to neglect it. Such neglect would itself be sin, and it would lead others into sin. So how can pastors today make membership meaningful to ourselves and to our congregation? Here's my basic suggestion. I suggest that we speak of it as a matter of love. As a matter of love. And teach it as the appearance of love. Now, I have listed down here five ways that it relates to love, but you can think of more. This is not an exhaustive list. Uh, I'll just give these as examples. You can speak of church membership as the witness of love. Number one, the witness of love. I'll give you five of these. Number one, the witness of love. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35 that the world would know that we're His disciples by the love we have for one another. The church is Jesus' evangelism plan. Our love for each other is to be such a compelling witness that the non-Christians around us see the life and the society that they desire so much that it really can exist. Even in this fallen world, we can know lives lived in the context of unconditional, inconvenient, and inconveniencing self-sacrificial love for each other. The Christian gospel necessarily includes a message about sin And it's convicting. But the Christian gospel is also to be illustrated by lives of love that are compelling. This God of justice is a God of mercy. This God of holiness is also a God who has himself borne the weight of his own opposition to evil. The love of Christ displayed on the cross is displayed in the lives of the Christians in the church. Our lives are to back up the witness of our lips. We're made in the image of God and we long to live in that image again, even while we're in rebellion against God. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm not sure what you're doing at this conference on a Friday afternoon, but I'm very glad you're here. Uh, you're welcome to come anytime there's a meeting in this place. 
we are people who are exactly like you and that we're made in the image of God. And we've been made to know God. And we've all rebelled against Him in our sin. Doing what we want rather than what God wants, not trusting Him, is what the Bible calls sin. And yet God has forgiveness for everyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Him. God has sent His own Son, Jesus, to live a life exactly as He should have lived. Exactly in trusting His Heavenly Father at all points. Exactly as you and I should have lived and haven't. And by His life and His substitutionary death on the cross, God used Jesus. Jesus gave Himself as someone to bear the wrath of the Father so that those of us who deserve that wrath could find forgiveness with Him. God raised Him from the dead. He ascended to heaven. His sacrifice was presented to His heavenly Father and accepted. And so we can know that we can have new life in Christ. Friend, that life is here for you today if you want it. Speak to somebody around you. You could not be in a better place. You know, talk to anybody. You don't have to come forward at the end. Just talk to anybody around you. You know, this is, this is what we in our local churches are supposed to be giving witness to all the time. And not just with our words, but by the very way we conduct ourselves. A witness to this love. Membership witnesses to Christ's love. So that's number one. Number two, though, it's also the assurance of love. Jonathan mentioned this morning that situation in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to assume a lot of you are familiar with that. Uh, there is a man in the church in the first century in Corinth who seemed to be sleeping with his father's widow. Uh, and this was seen as immoral in Corinthian society at large. But the Corinthian congregation was accepting him as doing something okay. So Paul wrote to them saying they needed to wake up to the truth and realize that they had someone in their number who was living in an immoral way. He was living in a way that really made him an enemy to the gospel that he was clearly professing as a member of the church. So this man who was committing adultery with his father's wife, which as I say was a serious crime, even pagan Corinth, it could get you ostracized, thrown out of the city. But when Paul writes, he doesn't write to the man directly. It's very interesting. When you look in 1 Corinthians 5, he's not the direct object of Paul's rebuke. That's reserved for the congregation. And why is that? Because it was the congregation who was allowing the man to continue thinking of himself as a follower of Jesus when he was in fact in open and unrepentant sin. His sin was the leaven in the loaf, to use the image that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5. It was the infection in the body. Now that single infection was serious, but it wasn't nearly as serious as the congregation's toleration of it. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm saying that guy you think of in your own church who's in serious unrepentant sin and everybody in your town knows it, he's not in nearly as much trouble as your congregation is. Okay? Right. I'm saying that's your fault. Let's just let that settle in. There's a culpability each of us have for our own sin, no doubt. But there's also the culpability that a Christian church has of letting somebody who's in known, undisputed, we all agree he's in sin and he's not repenting and we all know it, letting such a person like that continue untroubled in membership in the church. You see how it lies in so many ways about the gospel. To be welcoming and tolerant at this point, say in Corinth, was not simply an individual infection. It was a failure of the body's entire immune system. 
It showed that something was, that was essential to the body's life and continuance was missing. And it would quickly lead to the death of that local body if not immediately addressed. A body that could not resist such intrusion would soon succumb to it. Okay, considered from the point of view of the individual discipline, such an action that Paul was calling the Corinthians to do was an act of love. It is a loving thing to tell that man the truth about his sin. Given that that man was obviously continuing to regard himself and as a Christian and was being regarded by others as a Christian, he was clearly self-deceived. And we know that professing Christians can be self-deceived. Right? If, you do, if that's a surprising idea to you, a Christian can be self-deceived, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We have to realize that our immediate assurance that we would give somebody else of their salvation based merely upon the fact that they just professed Christ may not be the most loving thing we can do. You want to know a reason why not to practice spontaneous baptism? There's a good one right there. If that's true for us as individuals, it is doubly true of our congregations. Joining a church is joining an assurance of salvation cooperative. We are to observe evidences of God's grace in each other's lives. We're to encourage one another. We're to correct one another when occasion requires. Paul was urgent in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, that the Corinthians not be deceived about who would inherit the kingdom of God. That warning of his sprang from love. So membership functions to assure us that we have truly known God's love and that we are truly loving God in response. So that's the assurance of love. That's another way membership functions is love. A third thing, the nature of love. The nature of... This is especially important because we are so confused about what true love is. 1 John 3, verse 10. 1 John 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So friends, love is a necessary Christian characteristic. Not just that mature Christians love. You know, mature Christians give themselves in love to other Christians. It's what real Christians do. So the commitment of church membership begins to give a kind, of, a kind of shape and appearance to our love. Membership tests our claims to love. It calls for particular obediences. But surely we know God, one might say, because our hearts are moved when we sing the doxology. Or our, our tears roll down our cheeks when we sing this song. No, John says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Our lives are the pictures that illustrate the text of our words. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20 
sometimes say to young theologues in my congregation, because we have long sermons and we, we do the kind of things that will attract young theologues sometimes, I guess. And I sometimes say to them, look, if you, if you love to read John Piper and Wayne Grudem, but you won't inconvenience yourself to go pick up a 90-year-old man who needs a ride to church, I don't know if you're born again. I don't know if you're a Christian. You know, the, the demons can sit around and read very fat systematic theologies and be very interested in the intricacies of them. But, but they're, they're not changed. If you're born again, your heart has been changed. You, you live differently than you did live. You are motivated to give yourself in love to others. It's the nature of loving real people that it will at times be difficult and inconvenient. That's why in our local church we covenant together with a formal membership because it, it helps to protect us from temptation to deceive ourselves just by having our own kind of imaginary spiritual lives out on our own. I think homogeneous congregations are filled with the more natural empathy for those who are like us, all young parents, everybody with this kind of job or this kind of background. The inconveniences of love are minimized in a congregation where everybody's just like you. But I think the worth of our love is therefore less compelling evidence that it comes from God. I think what begins to compel people in witnessing it, to compel us in evaluating our own love, is when we find ourselves loving people with whom we really have nothing in common other than Christ. I think then it begins to exhaust human explanations. Membership functions to instruct us in the very nature of Christian love and to encourage its expression. It disciplines our desire to love. Number three, then, so number one, the witness of love. Two, the assurance of love. Three, the nature of love. Number four, the obedience of love. The writer of the Hebrews said in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Church membership is showing committed love to particular leaders. That's one aspect of it. It is showing committed love to particular leaders. Ephesians 4.11 teaches us that pastors are gifts of Christ to His church. Christians are to accept that gift by obeying those pastors. Now, obedience is an awkward word for sinners. I know that. We were thinking about it earlier. By nature, we don't like it. We immediately think of abuses of authority. And abuse is widespread and terrible in its consequences. But such abuse does not delegitimize authority itself. Satan's attack from the very beginning has been to tell humans that authority and love cannot go together. God cannot really love you, Adam and Eve, and tell you no. That's right. But friends, that was wrong then. And that's the same basic strategy He uses all the time with us. He uses it with our kids. He uses it in our own hearts. He uses it in our churches. And it's, it's never true. We know that God can love us. In fact, His great proof is God's love for us unbelievably as He has in Christ, as He sacrificed His own comfort for our good. Read the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. God is worthy of trust. 
Throughout creation, authority is to be an expression of God's own character. I think that's what Paul's going on about in Ephesians 3, uh, verses 14 and 15. Or the final words of David that I read you before lunch from 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. Authority, well exercised, blesses those under it. This is true in the home. It's true in the nation. It's true in the church, just like it is in marriage. Very practically... Pastors need to know for which Christians they'll be giving an account to God. So, in your congregation, do you have more attenders than you do members? Well, in our church, only the members have told me their understanding of the gospel, their experience of God's grace. Only, only they have pledged themselves to me and other members of the congregation to pray for us, to support us, to care for us, to love us. Now, some of the other attenders may do those things, but for some reason they haven't told us that. So we don't really know how to pray for them. We don't know how to count on them. We don't know how to care for them. Practically, you see, membership functions to facilitate loving obedience to the pastors God has placed there and to facilitate loving care among all the members. That's why I find a membership directory to be really, really useful. A fifth thing, the glory of love. The glory of love. When Saul was going to persecute the Christians in Damascus. He, we read in Acts 9, fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The risen Christ did not ask why he was going to persecute Christians. Didn't ask why he was going to persecute the church. No, he asked Saul, why do you persecute me? Christ so identifies himself with the church, like we were thinking about from Matthew's Gospel. The church that he founded, the church that he purchased, that he takes an attack upon the church as an attack upon himself. The local church was not the idea of some preacher's union trying to create jobs. It is the idea, the creation of Christ himself. It's the expression of his own nature and character. It reflects him. It's evident goodness brings him glory. So we read those words in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's to His glory. Or as Peter later wrote in 1 Peter 2.12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. You note the connection between our actions and God's glory. Somehow He is praised and glorified for our good works. This is the work of the church. To bring such glory to God from His creation as we display His character in our lives. So friends, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, how do we see Jesus today? Jesus is not to be worshipped through physical icons and images. We have no account of Him ever teaching His disciples to draw or sketch or sculpt. We have books they wrote, but no images they made remaining for our adoration. In fact, the earliest images we found of Christ were made in derision. It's found on the wall of a Roman catacomb. It's a cross with a stick, fi stick figure with an ass's head with the mocking inscription scrawled beneath, Eleximenos worships his God. Somebody tormenting some other Christian down there in the catacombs with them. 
Now, a few centuries after the New Testament, John of Damascus said that to deny icons was to deny the Incarnation. And it may be in his day that some who opposed the use of icons did deny the Incarnation. But those who went before him, an older tradition than John of Damascus, who neither denied the Incarnation nor used icons, they knew that the point of the Incarnation was never merely the physical appearance of Christ. It was the life and death, the flesh and blood that he lived out. If we just had a photograph of Jesus and the twelve disciples, I don't think we could tell which one was Jesus. There wouldn't be a golden plate behind his head. But if it became a moving picture, then I think by his loving interaction with others, his glory would begin to appear. Now don't misunderstand my little side attack on icons. I, I don't mean to deride our desire for the visible. You know, people say, Mark, this is a, a visual age. Look, friends, every age is a visual age. We were made with eyes. We were, Steve Jobs didn't come up with these. We were made to crave the immediacy of sight. It's part of our very nature. We naturally desire to see God immediately. But that blessing was taken away from us at the fall. So we live in salvation history in the era, not of the eye, but we live in the era of the ear. Now one day, that glorious immediacy of seeing God in an unmediated fashion will be restored to us. And friends, that's the climax of the Bible. That's Revelation 22.4. You know, the highest mountain in the Bible, there it is, Revelation 22.4. They shall see God. That's when the fall is finally undone. But until then, God is made most visible, it seems, not in two-dimensional paintings, with all due respect to our Greek Orthodox friends, but in the lives lived out in the local church. That is His plan, it seems, for church membership to display the glory of His nature and goodness and love and so bring Him praise. Well, that's the big second point, how you would talk about it to your people. Some ways. You can come up with more. Let me give you now very practically 12 steps to regain meaningful membership. And we talked about when we would do this during the conference. We thought we'd do it earlier on so that we'd have time to talk about some of these things. Because it may be that not all of these things are self-evidently, of course you should do this. But let's throw them out there and then we'll have time during the breaks to talk about them and see if you think these are some good ideas. But here are, here are 12, here's a kind of 12 step recovery plan. For, uh, for pastors to regain meaningful membership in your church. Ready? Twelve of them. Number one, regularly proclaim the gospel in your preaching. Regularly proclaim the gospel in your preaching. Be certain to include clear statements of the nature of God, of human sin, of God's provision in Christ, of His substitutionary death and bodily resurrection. Be clear in calling for repentance and faith. Even in the way that you explain what repentance looks like, you can make it clear that people who don't give themselves in loving commitment to each other have no reason to think that they have given themselves in loving commitment to God. Define what it means to be a Christian again and again in, in provocative ways that causes complacent people to obey Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine yourselves. Preach the gospel like that. Number two. Have and use a congregationally agreed upon statement of faith and church covenant. 
have and use a congregation agreed upon statement of faith and church covenant. Think carefully about the length and detail you want in such a document. You're showing just that with, with membership in the congregation comes responsibility. The statements of what the congregation together believes and how together they, are li- they will live are important. The statement of faith is what you believe. The church covenant is how you will live. They are a clear ground of unity. They are a tool of teaching. They are a fence from the worldly who would erase such distinctions or the divisive who would try to narrow them. Lots of questions we could ask there, but let me leave it at that. Number two. Number three, very practical, require attendance at membership classes before admitting someone into the membership of a congregation. It is a loving thing for you to present to them the expectations that you have of them. Let them know before they join what the expectations others will have of them and what they in turn can expect from the congregation. It's an opportunity to teach carefully through your statement of faith and your church covenant before they'd be asked to sign them. You can also explain membership, uh, something of the history of, of Christianity in your own denomination, even your own particular congregation. It's a good time to orient them to how your own local church works but require attendance at membership classes before admitting someone into membership in a congregation. I'm curious, how many churches do that? Just put up your hand if you require attendance at membership classes before joining. Okay, I'm guessing 60% of the people are putting up their hands, maybe 70%. Okay. Number four, require an interview after they have been through the membership classes, but before they have been recommended to the congregation for membership. This interview can be the occasion for the actual signing of the Statement of Faith and the Church Covenant that they've studied in the classes. Now, in the past, Christians have conducted such membership interviews by a committee of members or deacons or elders or even in front of the entire congregation. Uh, our church hadn't done that really much throughout the 20th century uh, when I came in 1994, and I wanted to start that practice again. And when I first brought up the practice, some people thought it sounded strange, like it's not something they'd ever heard of and really didn't seem like a, a good thing to do. Well, in God's providence, as the history nerd that I am, I was reading through, you know, every old scrap of paper I could find in our church archives about our church. And what did I find but a membership application form to our church from January of 1895. And I looked at it, and it was almost identical to the kind of questions that I was proposing asking. So I put it in our next church newsletter, which was January of 1995. Just put that membership application exactly on the front page so people could see I'm just doing what our great-great-grandparents did. You know, it was pretty useful then, be pretty useful now. You know, have an interview where you try to find out about their understanding of the gospel. Ask them to share the gospel with you. Ask them to give you a detailed account of their own conversion and their discipleship since then. Reiterate the expectations the congregation has for them to be present at the gatherings on the Lord's Day, at the Lord's table, at members' meetings. Also, remind them of their obligation to build relationships as they get to know others and allow themselves to be known and to pray for other members and to give financially. So require an interview after they have been through the membership classes but before they've been recommended to the congregation for membership. Number four. Number five. Stop baptizing and admitting children into formal local church membership. Here's what a former Baptist pastor and professor of evangelism at Southwestern said a few decades ago. 
as he noted the trend in the 20th century for younger and younger baptisms. Quote, at a time when he's too young to choose his clothes for himself, at a time when he's too young to choose a life's vocation, at a time when he's too young to serve on a church committee, at a time when he's really too young to vote intelligently on business matters in the church, at a time when he's not considered legally responsible by any agency in the community, there's been a tendency to feel that he's sufficiently responsible to make a life-binding, permanent-type decision concerning his relationship to Christ and his church. If we are unwilling to feel that the child is capable of making lesser decisions, how can we justify our confidence in the efficacy of this greater decision at this age? Close quote. Now, friends, let me be clear. The question is not whether a 5- or 10-year-old can savingly confess Christ. Uh, of course they can. I assume many people in this group came to Christ at a very young age. Uh, the, the question is one of the congregation's ability to discern and to act on the basis of. The large number of nominal Christians and rebaptisms in Southern Baptist churches seem to answer that we've gotten something badly wrong in this in the 20th century. We are not meant to be able to fully distinguish a child's love and trust in God from their love and trust in adults, especially their own parents. It's not the right time in life to try to discern that. It doesn't mean there's not a reality there. Of course there's a reality there. And in some cases may be much clearer to us than other cases. But we're not surprised that those things are so intertwined. Now, up, uh, uh, they grow up over time. The distinction becomes clearer to us as the outlines of the young adult's life come into place, as they feel the pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and yet choose to follow Christ. Friends, Christians around the world know this. We here in America used to. We can again. Be more careful. Be more reticent about baptizing children. Number six. Realize that admission into church membership is an act of the congregation. I think this is clearly implied in 2 Corinthians 2.6 where Paul appeals to the Corinthian congregation to readmit someone. Whether this is done in the most direct manner by a congregational vote or in a less direct method by publicizing names for a set period of time and asking for feedback, somehow the congregation needs to be taught that it must act to admit someone into membership and that apart from death, it must act to release someone from church membership. Sometimes people get the wrong end of this and they think, oh, you're saying I can't ever get out of your church, you know, you're, you're kind of... You're kind of in, in perpetual control of me if I ever join your church. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that just as you couldn't decide to join a church by yourself and automatically be a member, the church has to accept you as a member. So you can't just decide to leave by yourself. You can, of course, physically leave our building and never come back. But the membership of the church, you can't unilaterally simply decide to leave. The church has to agree to release you from the covenant, from the agreement that they've made with you. Make sense? Anyway, this is a good thing for you to think about more, perhaps. Number seven, publish a membership directory in which the members of the church are represented by name, picture, physical address, email, phone numbers. Publish it regularly so that it's accurate. So this is our September 23rd one. And uh, as I come out with uh, problems in it uh, every morning, Nick, where are you? Nick Roark? Nick Roark, are you here? Nick, okay, look at that guy right there. Nick, wave again. Nick, many mornings you get an email from me, right? Well, many mornings, maybe every morning, in which I like detail for Nick things and a couple of places I prayed that morning. Oh, I think this has changed. Look at this. What about this? Check into this. And hopefully I'm not the only one doing that. 
And so Nick publishes you know, a, different, a new edition of this maybe a couple times a month. Uh, so we have a practical tool to pray through uh, where members are taught to update their information regularly. And you can use this directory as a prayer list for the pastors, for the members of the church. So I always tell members of the congregation, we, we would like you to pray through a page each day or a couple of pages a day in your own personal prayer time. You won't know most of the people. We have a large church. That's fine. Just the things you're reading in the Bible, pray for yourself, pray for them. And you'd be surprised how slowly but surely you get to know more of those people. Number eight, give active pastoral oversight to the members. Give active pastoral oversight to the members. Try to make sure that every member is in regular conversation with some elder or some mature Christian in the congregation. Take initiative in trying to know what's going on in members' lives. Use your lunches, phone calls, emails, texts, book recommendations, conversations after church gatherings. Pastors can make more structured efforts at the member visitations, depending on how many pastors you have and how many members you have. Number nine, work to create a culture of discipling in the church. Work to create a culture of discipling in the church. So rather than basically relying on programs of small groups or shared interests, Encourage members to deliberately give themselves in love to each other. Encourage them in their responsibilities to care for each other. Use the staff to facilitate relationships with the goal that everyone in the congregation would have multiple natural relationships with others in the congregation in which they are being built up as Christians. Help them to understand that their welfare is the business of their brothers and sisters. So, Work to create a culture of discipling in the church. A phrase I often try to use is, you know, if you tell me you're following Jesus, but you're not helping other people follow Jesus, I just don't know what you mean when you say to me that you're following Jesus. Just help, I'm not saying you're not, I'm just saying help me understand what it means that you're following Jesus if you're not trying to help other people follow Jesus. Number ten, limit some activities, events, and areas of service in your church. Limit them to just members. For example, there should be a meeting at which only members attend. This could be on a Sunday night or a Saturday, but they need to be separate from the public services to which all are welcome. Because the biblical practice of church membership is going to require some discussions that are both church-wide, but which are only the church. I think Jesus' words in Matthew 18 seem to imply something like this. Make sure that only members can hold offices in the church. Uh, be in various kinds of leadership and service. Take public roles that would imply the congregation's knowledge and consent. So in our own congregation, except for evangelistic small groups, we have small groups that are just for our members. Uh, as part of our congregation's discipleship plan, we take responsibility for those small groups, for training their leaders. And so we need to be able to approve the leaders and settle any difficulties that occur. Now, of course, our members are free themselves to arrange Bible studies with anybody they want to, whatever they want to. That's their own business. But the ones that we take responsibility for, uh, that we take responsibility for training the leaders and placing members in, we have only members in those small groups. As a staff, we simply don't take responsibility for training leaders of just any Bible study that any member may choose to go to. You know, we don't rely on those other Bible studies for our congregation's life. Though it may be a great thing to do at your workplace, in your neighborhood, whatever but have some areas of your church life which are only for members. Number 11, only after membership is recovered, consider reviving the practice 
of corrective church discipline, including excommunication or exclusion. Too many pastors attempt to recover meaningful church membership by first recovering the practice of corrective church discipline. Don't do that. That is a rough way to try to make your membership meaningful. You know, you're just going to explode it and make sure that nobody ever comes in again who believes in membership. Be very careful. That can be jarring in the extreme for a congregation. You first have to take steps to recover a positive understanding and experience of membership where it becomes normal for people to know the truth about each other's lives. And once that becomes normal, well, then it would begin to seem strange if you weren't speaking into each other's lives as somebody is you know, regularly committing adultery. Then the lack of church discipline would begin to seem strange. Uh, I have a chapter or an appendix in the back of the Nine Marks book on why you shouldn't practice church discipline. That if you want to read more about that, you can look there or look on the Nine Marks website, I think, for the same article. Number 12, finally, we must recover something of the grandness of God's plan. And one of my hopes and prayers for this weekend conference is that you will see more of the grandness of God's plan. I love the language from the first session about our being the representatives of God on planet Earth. Well, what a grand thing. And I think from the other passages we're going to hear from as the conference goes on, we'll get this more and more. Pray for God's blessing on other local evangelical congregations uh, by name in your Sunday morning services. I, I love praying for other churches. It makes it clear that we are not just about Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We are about the Lord Jesus Christ in every community that loves and worships Him on the hill, in the D.C. area, around the country, and around the world. Remind the congregation of the story that we're involved in that's much greater than just that of our own local congregation. And part of the way, part of the, or an aspect of the grandness of the plan that we need to remember is that serious accountability that we as pastors have. The Hebrews thirteen seventeen accounting to God that we will give to those to whom we've given assurance of their salvation by taking them into membership in our church. Continued membership in our congregation is giving somebody assurance of salvation. And if there are no signs of a sinner being repentant and reconciled with God, we are not loving them by simply adding their name to our church's role and counting them on our numbers. And remind yourself of the one who finally determines the meaning of church membership. I love this quotation of the Scottish pastor John Brown in a letter of paternal counsels to one of his pupils newly ordained over a small congregation. If you know the quotation I'm about to use, raise your hand. I'm not going to make you say it. I'm just curious how how familiar this is. Am I succeeding in catechizing the current generation with this quotation? No, not yet. Okay, here it comes again then. All right, it's a great quotation. A letter of paternal counsels to one of his pupils, newly ordained over a small congregation, and he writes, 19th century Scottish pastor, quote, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at His judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. (laughs) Friend, that begins to reorient you to what church membership really means. It is that serious. And we're the people who must know that. Let's pray together. 
Lord God, You know what congregations are represented here. You know how we are representing You or well or poorly in our churches. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to understand more of how we can regain meaningful church membership for the good of the sheep in the flock, for the good of the sheep who aren't currently yet in the flock, for the good of those who need to be called in and converted to wolves that need to turn into sheaves, a sheep, and, Lord, ultimately for Your own glory. Oh, Lord, do this work. Pour out Your Spirit to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name.